helping to foster a free and fair press throughout the world. Internews is an international non-governmental organization based in California and Washington, D.C., with the mission of empowering local media worldwide to provide independent news and information. Its president, Jeannie Burgot, lives in Maine and has spent her career helping to develop media in new and emerging democracies. She's worked in the former Yugoslavia in post-war Kosovo, as well as for the U.S. Agency for International Development and at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. She's in the studio with me today to tell us about the work Internews is doing around the world. We'd like to hear from you. Have you traveled to other parts of the globe? What did you think of the journalism in those places? Email talk at mpbn.net or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. Planting the seeds of a strong and secure free press throughout the world. This is Maine Calling. Broadcast of Maine Calling is made possible by MPBN listener support and by the Maine Association of Nonprofits, uniting and strengthening the nonprofit sector through management training and advocacy, nonprofitmaine.org, and by Maine Audubon, the people conserving Maine's wildlife for everyone. Learn more at maineaudubon.org. In this world of the 24-hour news cycle and the blogosphere that never sleeps, Uh, Many of us here in the U.S. may forget that in some parts of the world there is a news and information desert. There are obstacles, all kinds of obstacles, to overcoming um, or to to filling that void. Um, And my my guest in our studio today, Jeannie Burgo, is dedicated to that and has been for some time. Jeannie Burgo, welcome to Maine Calling. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. uh, first of all, you, you live in you live in Maine, which uh, but uh, but uh, but your organization has its kind of headquarters in Washington and California. How did you end up in in Maine? Well, I think I ended up in Maine for the reasons many people do, because it's the most beautiful place in the world to live. Uh, but we are uh, our organization has offices in fifty six countries around the world. Our headquarters is split between Washington and Northern California. We have staff in Seattle, in Boulder, in San Francisco. So we are virtual. We believe in the power of technology to communicate, and so we have found it uh, possible for people to live in a variety of different places and, and be able to get the get the work done. So uh, what is Internews exactly, and why was it started? Uh, we're an international nonprofit organization dedicated, um, as you said in the intro, to empowering local media around the world. Our programs are, are rooted in the idea that when people have access to quality, locally produced, locally relevant news and information, they make better decisions for themselves, their families, for their communities. They're informed to make good decisions, and they're also able to hold their governments more accountable. So we just view media as an incredibly powerful tool to advance sort of the broadest of development goals around the world. What were your origins? How, how far back does this go? We are celebrating our 30th anniversary this year, uh, which is very exciting. So 30 years ago, our founder, David Hoffman, came up with the idea that media and, and communications was just a powerful tool to solve at that point. It was the U.S.-Soviet uh, the, the challenge between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And so he used innovative technologies, innovative medias to try to bridge the communication gap between the United States and the Soviet Union and introduced a really innovative tools of, of space bridges, satellite space bridges, where citizens of the United States 
started talking to citizens of the Soviet Union for the first time and introduced that about three decades ago. And, of course, that whole dynamic goes back uh, back to the Cold War. I remember growing up in the 1960s and seeing PSAs for Radio Free Europe, right. um, which was this anti-communist uh, right. radio initiative. It exists today. It's still, still broadcasting still exists all around the today. world. Yeah. Um, so, uh, is, so is this sort of a, an extension of that idea? Uh, it's it's a it's a different take on that idea. I mean, that idea is to just make sure that from an international perspective that quality news and information gets into these countries. Our focus is making sure that these countries can produce their own local news and information at that, you know, at the most community level where people are making the day-to-day decisions that we all need to make. And so we want to make sure they have their own news and information not broadcast from the outside. And we said at the top, we're talking about emerging democracies in quotes there. Can you give us some examples of real places where this is playing out? Right. We're in 56 countries around the world, and they, the, they're they as diverse as Chad to China. And each country that we're working in, the challenges facing an open and independent press are, are very, very different. In a place like Chad, it is a complete information desert where we ended up building a network of community-owned, community-run uh, radio stations um, on the border, actually, with Darfur and Chad. So brought in all of the equipment trained the journalists, trained the producers, trained the station managers. And we've, we've just recently left Chad and left behind this network of stations that are remaining viable to this day. So we're really excited. And in places like that, people have just never even heard their local community voices on the air. And it's sometimes it's, it almost seems like a miracle to hear it coming over the airwaves. And it so, becomes so powerful. So in that case, you were helping to build an, an infrastructure right. of, of towers and wires and, yep. all, and all of that. Um, so how much of it is is that sort of setting up the system versus also showing the, the, the journalists in Chad Absolutely. how to carry out fair and balanced and independent journalism? Yeah, I'll, I'll actually describe our program in Afghanistan, which gives you the full range of the things we do. We did um, that the infrastructure piece and built a, a network of 48 radio stations all around the countries and in, in local communities that never had, had radio ever before. Um, this is in Afghanistan? In Afghanistan. Which I think is, must be a challenge given the mountainous terrain, uh, the way that radio travels. When, when, when it's in a community, it doesn't get very far outside of that right, community. Yeah, right. But it is truly a community-run station. Um, But in addition to that, we helped uh, really help focus on the content and help create a nonprofit production company. We like to call it the NPR of Afghanistan. I'm not sure that NPR would appreciate that. It's called Salam Watandar, Hello Countrymen. And they operate on a really similar model as NPR where they produce programming and distribute it out to this network of stations. We um, also have done a lot of advocacy or helped local groups do a lot of advocacy on media law, effective media law and regulation to make sure that the airwaves stay free, to make sure that people are able to publish newspapers, to make sure that the Internet is free for people to use in Afghanistan. So that legal and regulatory framework is really critically important, too. And then finally, you need to help make sure that that's financially sustainable, that these stations, after all of this help, can stay over the long term and have advertising markets and, and, and understand that part of the business. Can the NPR model uh, extend to Afghanistan on the uh, monetary, on the, on the fiscal uh, membership uh, system? They've been able to generate, they're not working on the membership system. They are w- working on more of an advertising system and then they share the revenue from the advertising. So far, they've been doing pretty well. There is a lot of external money in Afghanistan right now. So the real challenge will be after 2014 when there are fewer and fewer organizations there from the international development community, will these stations be able to survive after that? We're hopeful and we're certainly trying to train them on the skills necessary to survive. Is radio the primary medium here? In Afghan, in places like Afghanistan, yes. We, uh, we are 
we're media neutral, we like to say. In the former Soviet Union, the primary source of news and information was television. When we started working in Africa and Asia, we found the primary source of news and information to be radio because of literacy issues, because of cost issues. Increasingly around the world, mobile media, online media is taking over in importance throughout the Middle East, of course. But we're still finding, at the end of the day, radio tends to be the most powerful tool. That, That literacy issue, the cost issue, the ability to get at that local level there, there's no, nothing like radio. And radio uh, can be used, it can be delivered not just through Absolutely. towers, but Absolutely. also on cell phones, mm. which yep. are everywhere and in the world. Informal networks. And yeah, it's amazing what, what can be done with radio at this. But we have radio stations in a backpack. We, have, we can set up a radio station in, in a box if in, in, in an emergency or humanitarian crisis like in Haiti. We're able to fly in emergency radio stations, emergency radio kits just to help rebuild quite quickly after after the disasters. Are there any uh, cultural uh, tendencies that you find that sort of make the the uh, you know educating people about the, the the basic rules of journalism that that challenge that or or is this something that um, is 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 journalism something that can can be applied in any culture? We find it fairly universal when it comes to the values of journalism. There are cultural issues when it comes to gender in in the newsroom and in all of our countries in all of our programs around the world. We really strive to make sure that women have equal access to working in every position possible in the newsroom and, and including owning stations. Women in, in traditional societies, uh, radio is very powerful for them because they often can't be on television screens, but they can often have their voices heard on radio. And so you can really find a way to empower women to be participate in the media. And when they do, we find it to be a better media. And so that's been a real priority for us around the world. Are, are there issues of, um, for example, uh, religious powers that be influencing the content? Uh, it there, there Certainly there's pressures in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan where religious, where traditional forces will often have their own media that competes with a more progressive media. We we tend to, we sort of have a, a, a selection process where we're only working with media that are interested in share sort of our view for what international standards of journalism should be. And they're trying to strive to achieve that. And so there's sort of a self-selecting process where we don't get the types that are sort of putting out more uh, militant sort of rhetoric. But there is a competition for the space in a lot of these countries. Now, of those 50, how many? 56 countries. Uh, of those 56 countries, were, did, did uh, journalism entities come to you from those countries and say, please help us? Or did you identify countries and say, there's a desert there, let's go there? It's a mix of both of those things. It tends to be more us because a lot of communities and, and, and countries don't know that this type of support exists. And so we'll often sort of identify and say, you know, again, the fall of the Taliban in Afghanistan was like, there is an amazing opportunity happening there. We have to sort of organize to find funding to get into those countries. And so when we can find donors who are interested in this type of you know, this type of programming, we can find a need that we think we can fill particularly well. Those two things come together and we can find partners in a country who are interested in working with us. That's when it all comes together. Uh, Join the conversation, 1-800-399-3566. We're talking with uh, Jeannie uh, Borgo, the president of Internews. There there must be skepticism when you introduce yourselves as an American-based organization that is coming to uh, create a, you know, a news outlet to help you deliver information and news. Is there not suspicion that this will come tainted with a Western viewpoint? 
Well, there's a couple of ways that we handle that because, of course, there there would be in, in a, a number of the countries that we work we work in. Um, one is that we try to present ourselves, and we are truly an international organization. The majority of our staff are not Americans. The majority of our staff are actually either from the region or from the country in which we're working, and so we have that international profile. We have really strong policies on sort of no editorial control. We will not accept any donor resources that expect editorial control. We do not push out messages. And and we try to make that very transparent and very clear that we are only here about the profession. We are not here to get a message out. And we have to communicate that once we're in country, the trust grows. They see how we work. And we can demonstrate these values um, in addition to saying what our values are. So it's just very, very important to be very clear about what you stand for. Where do you find your funders? Uh, we have a lot of funders from uh, governments, European governments, uh, the Australian government, Canadian government, the U.S. government, certainly a lot of foundations, the MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Knight Foundation, you know, private foundations in this country, and increasingly individuals. There's a number, you know, people are interested. I think people have really seen and feel the power of media and information. They've seen it with the Arab Spring, sort of the transformative effect that can happen when, when the media the social media comes together with traditional media. And so we've been seeing an increasing interest in the work that we're doing and sort of an increased diversification of supporters. Um, you mentioned the U.S. government is a funder. Can, how much do you get from the U.S. government? The vast majority of what we get is from the U.S. government. They are they are a very generous funder. They believe in this from both a uh, the the power of media for government accountability, the power of media because of economic development, and the power of media to sort of solve some broad social issues. And so they're they they are it's the U.S. Agency for International Development, the international the foreign assistance arm of the U.S. government. Um, have been very generous in the space and are one of the leaders in funding this space. But again, we're sort of seeing what they've been investing in has been catching on around the world. And we're really thrilled that the Australian government is just coming into the space and, and sort of in their foreign assistance program starting to fund as well. Have you faced uh, resistance from government saying, well, that's that's just a U.S. government-funded uh, you know, Western propaganda arm trying to get in here? Um, We've been kicked out. We were kicked out of certain countries. Uh, We were kicked out of Uzbekistan years ago. We were kicked out of Russia years ago when the governments decided they were no longer interested in these types of programs. It does. We we get very rooted into the local communities and we get very rooted into the local media. And sometimes it does become intimidating and and, and we have been we have been sent home. Uh, But you can you can also operate from afar in those countries or you don't have to have a uh, radio towers up in a country to well, particularly penetrate given that audience. The internet and, and the power of online media, which in a number of countries that are more closed, uh, that's certainly a, an incredibly powerful tool. And so we are developing programs that allow you to sort of train on quality journalism, even from afar, through distance learning and online relationships. And that that's been a growing part of our our, our work. All right, I want to talk about China after we take a quick break. We're talking with Jeannie Burgo, the president of Internews. And she leads the strategic management of the organization and its programs in over 50 countries around the world. We'd like you to join the conversation when we come back. Email talk at mpbn.net, tweet at Maine Calling, post a comment on our Facebook page, or call 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. We'll be right back. It is, of course, Election Day, and a reminder that MPBN's Your Vote 2012 online election resources are available at mpbn.net. You can find local debates, main calling candidate conversations, candidate profiles, and the candidate comparison grid, where you can compare how Maine's congressional and Senate candidates stand side-by-side on the important issues. 
Also, our election returns coverage starts at 7 this evening here on MPBN Radio with a pregame show of sorts from the Mostly Swing State Radio Network. And it will also continue at 8 and go as long as it takes with national and main returns from NPR and the MPBN News Team. Also, MPBN Television and PBS are providing election coverage starting at 8 o'clock. Broadcast of Maine Calling is made possible by listeners like you and by the University of Maine at Presque Isle, offering online majors and six-week terms to help you complete your degree. More at umpi.edu. And by Northeast Delta Dental, administering dental benefits for businesses of all size in Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont. Details online at nedelta.com. And welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Keith Shortall. Today we're talking about a non-governmental organization that helps establish and support local media worldwide to give people news and information. With me in the studio is Jeannie Burgo, president of Internews. We'd like you to join the conversation. Call 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. Email talk at mpbn.net, tweet at Maine Calling, or post to our Facebook page. Before the break, we were talking about some of the places that uh, that were more challenging for you. Um, talk a little bit about what's happening in in China now, which which I would not describe as an emerging democracy, but um, but obviously through these this economic relationship we have, um, I'm sure there's some interest in news and information. How is it going there? Yep. I mean, China's very famous for, of course, it's, it's uh, censorship uh, that you read about and hear about all the time. But what's interesting in China and that where we're engaging in China is that, in fact, inside China, there's an incredibly dynamic social media space, an incredibly dynamic, I mean, it's for the largest Twitter sphere. They, they're called Weibo, not, they don't use Twitter. They have their own tools that actually replicate a lot of the, the, the social media tools that we were using. And so there is an openness. And where we try to find, we're, we're working publicly in China, which is challenging, but but working. And there are openings. Uh, they, they're very interested in, in what we've been doing for a long time is sort of looking at the media law because they're grappling with all these new, what these new technologies mean from a media law perspective. And so we've had a program for a number of years training journalists and, and lawyers, on, excuse me, judges and lawyers on how to sort of interpret their new emerging media law. And right now we're working a lot in the social media space. There's a lot of civil society groups who are working online and doing a lot more communicating. And so there's this gigantic dynamic conversation happening inside of China, the problem comes when it starts going outside of China, when it becomes more challenging, where the censorship lines start. And what happens then? So if a Chinese official says, well, you, you may not say that or, or threaten some, to stop some sort of uh, line of, of questioning, or how, what do you recommend then that they do? How strenuously do those journalists fight that? Well, there's a lot of dynamics happening in China, um, and and each each blogger, each journalist has to sort of grapple with how they're going to handle the, their own law. You know, we don't give legal advice on how to handle these things. Again, we're we're heartened by the amount of online communication, and we sort of see that the change coming through China, and and they, they the Chinese are grappling with a pretty difficult regime. You know, sort of the censorship regime right now, but we're hopeful for the future. Um, so. Is then social media really the way around that? It's hard to censor uh, millions of people talking to each other um, in real time back and forth as opposed to going to a radio station and pulling the plug. Yeah. And we're, I mean, 
social media is becoming increasingly important for us around the world. And we always like to say, particularly about places like the Arab Spring, where it was famous for the power of social media and, and sort of the, the, the Twitter revolutions and the Facebook revolutions. And it was sort of that organizing power of social media combined with the amplifying power of traditional media, broadcast media, in the case of the Arab Spring, satellite media, that really caused a transition in those countries. And so in most places that we're working, we see it sort of a combination of the two, of traditional media plus social media, Creating a oh, you see it in this country all the time, and sort of that creating that and really rich dynamic, and 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 it's changing the world. Um, so, so how do you use social media though to, uh, you know, in a journalistic way? Uh, people are using it to talk to each other and express opinions. Right. But how do you say in China use that to? Do you share stories that way or? Uh, um, I mean, I think like Chinese bloggers, like bloggers around the world, are are using it in really similar ways. Exactly the way you're using it on this on this station and and on this program is you use it for that sort of exchange of ideas. And in some places, you do see it becoming a source of news and information, as again you do in this country, where stories will break on some of the social media sites, where they will break on the Twitter sites, and then they get picked up. But it's I think it's I think the worldwide trends are, are really similar. Now that's a way to get information out. Um, in a more practical way, though, how do you how do you monetize that social media? You're asking me the ten thousand dollar <laughs> question that everyone in the world wants to know. Well, it's an issue of sustainability. It, yeah. It's one thing to uh, create these connections and to put the journalists in place, but it's another to sustain it over time. Right. Well, I'll tell you about an interesting experiment we're doing in Kenya, which is a little bit off topic, but I, I do think that that monetization of these tools is the holy grail that all media are looking for around the world. So we don't have the obvious answer. We're helping all our partners sort of experiment in those areas. In Kenya, there's a huge phenomenon with mobile money where people use their mobile phones as their banks. And so we're working um, to set up a system where the community radio stations link up with a mobile banking system. So when people make their radio call-in dedications, they pay a little bit of money for it. They're able to do it over their cell phones straight through their mobile banking. And so we've set up sort of a very neat, or we're trying to set up, it hasn't quite worked yet, a very neat link between the heavy use of mobile phones and texting, mobile money, and monetizing for the community radio stations. Is there, um, um, are there are there lessons, do you think, be, that, that um, U.S. journalism organizations, commercial, public, could learn from some of what's happening uh, in these in these countries where this is a real struggle. Yeah. I mean the creativity coming out of places like Africa, across Africa, the creativity about the use of mobile and sort of the different ways that people use mobile phones or, or communicate with mobile phones, share information with mobile phones, you know, we're way behind in the United States when it comes to that. So I think there's a lot of really interesting um, experiments coming out of, of places like Africa where they've, you know, never had landlines the way we have landlines. They never had even transmission towers the way we have transmission towers. And so you see incredible innovation emerging all over the place. It's really exciting. And in, in fact, in many parts of the world are way ahead of us in terms of mobile technology yep, and usage. We, we like to think that we're in the lead on all of these things, but um, but we're a very wired, uh, literally with wires wired, exactly, country. Exactly. Um, join the conversation, 1-800-399-3566. That's 1-800-399-3566. We're talking with Jeannie Burgot, president of Internews. She lives in Maine, but it's an organization uh, that is uh, establishing uh, news and information, journalism entities throughout the world in over uh, 50 countries. Um, you mentioned a couple of places that you had been kicked out of. Uh, 
What, what is, how would you assess the danger to journalists in some of these places? Uh, journalism is one of the most dangerous professions in the world, and there's in a number of places. Mexico is one of the places where it's extremely dangerous. Afghanistan, it's been increasingly dangerous. Our partner in Afghanistan has been tracking uh, uh, violence against journalists, and there's a map that you can find online under their website, which is nai.org. They, um, the, the profession is incredibly dangerous, and so we try to, in, in particularly in these places where it is extra dangerous, Western journalists often have sort of security training, different things that they, they learn about sort of the, you know, how to protect themselves in a violent society. We're trying to bring that to local journalists as well. So we have a, we're growing our programs for sort of physical security and digital security. Journalists rely on tools such as mobile phones, which are dangerous to use if you're in a repressive regime. Uh, it, mobile phones are very easy to track. It's very easy to sort of you know, get people's contact information. And so we need to train journalists because they're in such an important position and because they're so vulnerable to understand both the physical and digital security uh, issues facing their, their profession. Um, I, I'm curious about, we talked about television and its importance, for example, in the Russian uh, market. Mm-hmm. Um, what's globally, though, is television um, uh, sort of a media of of the the future, or what's its what's its role? We're struggling with it here in the United States, but as a as this visual medium, um, what's its future? Do you think globally? Well, it is always always very popular. For example, in Afghanistan, which in the first decade after the fall of the Taliban, radio was was king. As soon as the sort of the wealth started growing enough that television could take off, it started taking off. I mean, if people can have access to visual images, it is the most appealing of all the media in every country that we see. Often television, because it is so expensive, you don't see it broken down at the regional level. It's often sort of a, 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 either a state-controlled or you know, public broadcasters like the BBC, sort of a centrally controlled media. So you don't get that community or out into the regions as much as as, as you'd like to see um, uh, from television. And then, of course, all around the world, the visual images are coming onto the computers and the Internet and the mobile phones as opposed to off the, the big the big towers and things like that. But uh, I think as a visual media, and it, it, it will always be extremely popular. Um, I, you're talking about uh, public media, and our model uh, is slightly different, for example, than the BBC right. is or the, even the CBC which are uh, government-funded but perceived by many people in those countries as um, independent, at least journalistically. It's not towing the the, – obviously this debate goes back and forth about about this. Are there examples elsewhere in the world in sort of emerging countries where a uh, a national government uh, uh, outlet – is you know can be uh, free from those influences uh, in the in in the in the same way. Yeah, I think the BBC model is one of the most difficult things to replicate anywhere else in the world. It really is something special. I mean, that yes, in 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 other European countries and in other parts of the world, Australia again being one, you can sort of see it in different contexts. But it's not an easy model to replicate. The the power of media is so great. If a government controls it, they often try to control it in many 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 of the countries that we work. Or if an industry controls it or a political faction controls it, they, it's, it's such a powerful media, they try to control it. So we haven't found – it's not a model that we try to stress. We really try to, again, break it down to the local and community level because there you can get plurality and diversity sort of much more easily. Um, and, and it is it, – it requires quite a 
a dedicated system to make something like the BBC work, and it is extraordinary. And if the world could have models like that, I would be thrilled. But it's, it's pretty hard to replicate. Uh, 1-800-399-3566 to join the conversation. I'm talking with Jeannie Burgo, president of Internews. Uh, there are a lot of other uh, uh, international news organizations, New York Times, um, uh, uh, CNN, Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera mm-hmm. that that operate in some of, uh, of these countries. Have you ever thought about um, uh, partnering, I guess, with them? They tend to go in, cover something, and then disappear when the news has ended. Um, is there is there an opportunity to partner with them? There is definitely an opportunity because we're working in places that they're not often thinking about. We're in places, you know, like Tajikistan, like Chad, yeah, that they just wouldn't even think of having sort of stringers in those. So often they actually call us and sort of say, "Hey, do you know somebody a local?" Because they work through local stringers if they can, and so they'll they'll come and sort of get engaged with the local media of that country. And we encourage it because it's really exciting for that sort of exchange of ideas and exchange of approaches. And so we love when that happens. The international media tend to focus on the international stories. Our partners focus on local stories. And so there isn't an obvious exchange of stories, but there is an, an, an exchange of expertise. And we, if we can ever get a CNN journalist or a BBC journalist to come in and serve as a trainer you know, while they're in country, we, we always try to do that because, again, it's a really exciting opportunity. Do you ever um, provide, for, for example, a local broadcaster in Afghanistan? If they were interested, for example, in the uh, U.S. elections, would you help them to uh, get them information about it? Or, and does, does it work that way as well, or do you stay out of that? Um, we, it, it, it doesn't necessarily work that way. It, we certainly would help them access that type of – we'd help them un- learn how to access that type of information, You know, not specifically give them the information, but how to, how to access whatever type of information they're looking for. The U.S. elections are incredibly popular around the world. Um, there's been some polling that shows by, – by Gannett, I believe, that, uh, that, that shows that – 62% of people around the world believe that this election, our election, has a huge and profound impact on their lives. And so it's, you know, watching the U.S. elections is something that many of our journalistic partners are really interested in doing. Take another short break when we come back. Your comments and questions, please stay with us. Two years ago, Maine voters produced a cliffhanger. We hope and pray it continues in the trend that we've had for the last hour. It didn't end until well into the next day. This morning I spoke with the Mayor Paula Page and congratulated him on his victory. What will happen Tuesday? This is MPBN's Erwin Gratz. Join us Tuesday night at 8 for live coverage of results from NPR. Keith Shortall will be here with Maine election returns and victory and concession speeches. Then join me, Steve Inskeep, and Renee Montaigne on Wednesday's morning edition. We'll recap results, have analysis, and keep watch over any major races still undecided. You can check out mpbn.net slash yourvote2012 for last-minute information about the major races. Do go out and vote and join us for election results Tuesday night starting at 8, Wednesday on Morning Edition from 6 to 10 here on listener-supported MPBN. A reminder that you can join us tonight at 7 o'clock here on MPBN Radio for a pregame show from the Mostly Swing State Radio Network. And if you'd prefer to watch your returns, MPBN Television and PBS are also providing election coverage starting at 8 o'clock. 
And welcome back. I'm Keith Shortall. You're listening to Maine Calling. Today on the program, Internews, an NGO that provides communities with the resources to produce local news and information with integrity and independence. With me in the studio, Jeannie Burgo, president of Internews. Join the conversation. Call 1-800-399-3566. Email talk at mpbn.net. Post to our Facebook page or tweet at Maine Calling. Let's uh, go to the phones now to Blue Hill, your hometown, uh, and uh, to John. Hi, John. Welcome to Maine Calling. Yes, hi, John. Yeah, hi. Uh, good afternoon. Um, just want to uh, say it's a, it's a wonderful organization with a great mission and really applaud the work that, that Jeannie and her team, team uh, do around the world. Um, just a, a question about, uh, you know, maybe successful ta- tactics that Internews has used throughout the world in, in getting governments to you know, not only uh, work, be cooperative, but also perhaps, you know, even to welcome uh, the team and their initiatives in, in the different countries. So I'll hang up and uh, listen on the radio. All right, John, thanks. I think the most important one is that, that media is an enabler of all sorts of progress in a country. You know, media is critical not just for accountable governance and, and democracy, but it's also critically important to economic development and, and uh, commercial success of, of businesses in your country. And so you, you have vibrant media is directly linked to economic progress. And so you can often come in and sort of say, we're not about a, a specific political message. This is going to help you grow. This is going to help solve health issues. This is going to help your economy grow. And this is going to help your people feel more engaged with their community. And so the, 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 the case for an open free and independent media is is very, very broad and, and should be appealing to co- countries around the world. So yeah, we're talking about it in terms of what it provides uh, for uh, the purposes of being better citizens or uh, being a, a, a emerging democracy and functioning that way. But it also sells shoes and Absolutely. cars and Absolutely. if you happen to have cars. Yeah. We have a wonderful program in Afghanistan through this uh, radio production house, uh, Salam Watandar, called Farm Talk. And they set it up based on car talk. And it's two farmers, one who's sort of a geeky sort of economist, sort of ag economist, and one who's just a basic farmer. And they joke about the farm prices. But the truth is, it's an agricultural country. And there's a lot of really important information that they can impart through that that format. And it works. It's it's enjoyable for their listeners. And it also helps helps the farmers around around the country. Uh, we have an emailer who asks, how is your organization perceived by established news organizations in developed countries, are you able to work together or do some see you as a competitive threat? Well, again, we're never the media in the country. We're only working with the broadest base of media in that country. Uh, we're, we're about capacity building as, as an organization. So, you know, media is a competitive space. And so and we, we actually hope that it will be competi- a competitive space in the countries that we work. We absolutely work with established media and, and help them sort of, you know, we, we don't select just one or two. We will work with you know, the broad base of media in a country who are interested, again, in these sort of international journalistic principles. And it does breed some competition, which is good. And you often have to do things at different radio stations. You can't always bring people all together in the same room because they're competitors. But I think that they understand sort of our role as, as unique and, and sort of are, are, are gaining an understanding of their competitors' roles as well. But if you place a, you know, Say you, you're in a country where um, a lot of the, the news outlets are maybe tainted by uh, political pressure or religious pressure and you play, put into that environment an, uh, an independent uh, entity. Does that not um, – uh, and say it's very popular. There's a lot of listeners to that. 
does that not sort of force some of the other entities to maybe resist um, their the, – the, Maybe it's forcing them to do a better job. But do a better job is what I'm getting at, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Does it spread? It does know? spread. I mean, that's that's the beauty of it. You know, the, if we uh, – one of our big programs is a health reporting uh, programs in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa where we go really in-depth sort of beat journalism, training journalists on how to cover health issues because their communities are fo- so affected by different um, – health epidemics, particularly HIV AIDS. And what we've discovered is these journalists become extraordinary journalists, and it becomes almost a competition between stations to sort of who can do the best health call-in radio show, who can do sort of the most compelling stories. And it is a competitive, and so the ideas bloom that way throughout the journalist community, and that's when you know things are really working. And, of course, on this particular day, this election day, um, thinking back of over the past really 12 months and all of the work that we have done on this election, first going through the primaries uh, here in Maine, uh, all the way through today. Obviously, politics, the workings of democracy are central to what we're doing here. Um, Is it is it really in other countries? Is it more about farm and farm issues and health politics. or are, are politics central as well? Politics are totally central. Uh, Ukraine just had an election that was a slightly, cont- you know, a little bit a little bit challenging uh, election, but the media was all over it. And we sort of worked with our partners in Ukraine as they set up a, a monitoring site, a, a crowdsourced map site where they could sort of report in violations on the election. As, and they were sort of very actively engaged with that. Thousands and thousands of violations um, registered there. In Kenya, several years ago in 2007, presidential elections were contested and the media just went, got all over the story and actually started handling it very badly. And the government had to shut down a number of the community media uh, stations. The community media came together after and said, what did we do? We did something wrong here. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And, And they've spent the last several years really focusing on how they can do a better job at competitive elections when things get really, really sensitive. They have elections coming up this March in, uh, in, in next March in 2013, and we're all going to be watching them and hope that the media there actually really take that opportunity to do serve the role that they should be serving in a, in a competitive election process. But the concept of radio call-in shows, the concept of public debates, the concept of multi-candidates getting equal equal airtime, something that we spend a lot of time on in the countries that we work when when an election is coming. And what about the rules, for example, of what one candidate, say, can say about another? Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing that the that the the, uh, the rules are slightly different in all countries yeah, culturally, and you can call yeah. someone a liar and there's no penalty there. there. There's tremendous variation, but there are certain concepts that we try to get in there. You know, the, the concept of paid advertising, the concept of of you know, sort of, of labeling paid advertising and versus you know, sort of earned media and sort of all those concepts. A lot of them are pretty new in some of the countries that we work, and so we spend a lot of time on that as well. I'm I'm wondering though also that you know, you if you have a government that um, is very controlling, particularly uh, particularly when it comes to politics, so they might allow, for example, say what say whatever you want about farming, say whatever you want even about health to give the appearance that it's open and free. But once it gets to politics and once it gets toward election day, then suddenly the clamp comes down. Well, that's why the most important thing is to get the, sort of that media legal and regulatory framework in place that actually protects against the clamping coming down. I mean, it's it's pretty devastating if it happens right around an election time. It becomes very, you know, very visible that that's happening. And so we do work with governments as well for them, again, to recognize the role that it can play, to make sure I mean, if everyone's playing well by the rules, 
it should work, but it, it, it takes a lot to get there. How hard will you fight? Uh, will, you take, will you take these issues to court? Do you take them to an international court? How, how do you do Again, it? We, we don't do it directly because we are just working with local partners, but we do help if there are, in many of the countries we work, there are local partners who are advocates for freedom of expression, and we will help them understand the international norms, the international standards, help them understand where they could go when they have cases like this, introduce them to other international uh, partners, such as the Committee to Protect Journalists or Reporters Without Borders, if they need to ratchet up uh, a media violation into a higher international space. We, we try to give them the tools so they can navigate that within the context of their own countries. Is this going to become more of an, um, uh, I don't know how to ask this, is it more of an issue than um, than it has been in the past, given uh, the changing technology. I t- yes, absolutely. I mean, the opportunities are only growing, and the challenges are only growing. And the fact that you know there's such a diverse set of tools that you can produce, consume, share information, it sort of the space is just blown wide open. And we're spending a lot of time navigating that as an organization. As again, I'm sure you are as an organization to sort of find the right balance between getting the right message, getting good quality messages out in a sustainable way, in a way that sort of helps, you know, really helps the the communities in which we're working. How do you, we're all assuming here that the journalists are all fighting the good fight and that it's the evil governments that are cracking down. Do you monitor, though, for journalists who have been established and are operating for a while and then, uh, you know, are... um, use this for their own benefit or are corrupted or... We encourage journalists to come together as they do on codes of conduct and sort of that sort of that peer monitoring and peer review. There are some countries where there's pretty effective monitoring organizations. Ukraine has a really fantastic one called Telekritika, which is, again, a, a critical online tool that watches the media and reports on the media and everybody in the media reads what they're reporting. And so that's an ideal situation when you can get ombudsmen and monitors out there that are sort of... Are, are, are watching and, and, and reporting very publicly on it. And we do encourage that. Um, um, where are you operating now? What's the sort of the latest front where you you have a project going? Africa has been growing like gangbusters. I mean, there's been a lot of, as I said earlier in the show, incredible technological advancements in Africa, blossoming of community media. So we're seeing a lot of opportunity and growth across the Africa region. The Arab Spring, certainly in the last, you know, couple of years has been something that we've been working closely with and watching in the transitional countries there because there are new opportunities for more independent voices in Tunisia and in Egypt. So those have been really exciting places over the, over the last year. Yeah. Is, is the Middle East, uh, how, do you, how do you look ahead and say, well, three years from now we might be focused there? Or are you doing it sort of up it's, to the minute. It's sort of, yeah, it happens because you never know. I mean, no one really predicted the Arab Spring. And suddenly, you know, we were all eyes are on, on, on Egypt and on Tunisia and now on Syria with, with the hope that that, that will end yeah, and, and, yeah. and that media can blossom there. So there, it, it, it's a mix of sort of seeing opportunities as well as, as responding to world events. Well, uh, apart from funding and sending you checks, is, is there anything that, you know, average citizens who are interested in this project can do to help? I'm looking at you, and I think you'd be a fantastic <laughs> trainer for some of our radio call, call-in shows. I mean, I do think sort of talking about the importance of media in your life and that the fact that, you know, your belief and, and, and the our listeners' belief that this is an important and powerful tool. It's important in this country, but it's also important in other countries and sort of make it part of the recognition that this is what we, you know, part of our international 
a commitment, I guess, as a nation to, to the world is to allow other people to have this thing that we treasure so much here. Website, real quickly www.internews.org. All right, Jeannie Burgo, thanks so much Thank for being so here much. today. Jeannie Burgo, president of Internews. Today's program was produced by Jonathan Smith. Lindsay Maynard ran the board. And Cindy Hahn answer, uh, took your calls. Tomorrow on the program, a recap of today's voting. We'll sort through who won and who lost. And for the latest election results, keep it tuned to MPBN Radio and Television and MPBN.net. We'll keep you covered and tell you how things worked out. I'm Keith Shortall. You've been listening to Maine Calling on the Maine Public Broadcasting Network.